This is the place where Black is the main character, where we dive into something new like the latest season of Them, The Scare, and the award-winning American fiction. Or add to the experience by buying or renting the biopic of a legend, Bob Marley, One Love. And add on channels like Paramount Plus and Stars to bask in nostalgia with Beverly Hills Cop and BMF. Explore Prime Video's culture-rated collection and enjoy old-school greats and new-school hits. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. Welcome to another round of Boardroom or Miro Board. Today we talk retrospectives with Agile Coach Maria. Let's go. First question. You've spent two hours in a team retro, but the only input you've heard is Dave's. Boardroom or Miro Board? Boardroom. In Miro, Dave can't hog the space because everyone can add thoughts anonymously, online, at the same time. Correct. Next. You need the team to act on feedback fast, so you turn all those retro notes into JIRA tasks instantly. Miro all the way. And I can assign those tasks to teammates. You're nailing this. Now, you see hundreds of sticky notes from the retro. A real mess. But you organize them into five themes in just seconds. Miro, I basically get back an entire hour when I use its AI tools for clustering. And she's done it. Join over 60 million people running actually enjoyable and actionable retros in Miro. Get your first three boards free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com. Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of Tigress. I feel like I haven't spoken to y'all in a while, but I think a lot of that is because I have no concept of time anymore. I don't know if anybody else is feeling this way post-pandemic, but I feel like yesterday feels like three weeks ago while also feeling like a blink of an eye ago slash sometimes I dissociate and I don't even remember yesterday. So I feel like I haven't talked to y'all in a while, but I think it's because we have so much to catch up about. One of those things is, you know, first of all, Roe versus Wade was overturned um, last Friday. And so I've definitely been emotionally reeling from that in the sense that you know, so much of my work is around reproductive rights and reproductive freedoms. And I have worked in legislative advocacy for several years now, even as like a passion of mine. And I think what's really fascinating or eye-opening for me is that in doing all of the legislative work, one of the reasons that I'm really passionate about it is because it feels so permanent, right? When you have legislative wins, that is a permanent win. It feels like a systemic change. And I think one of the heartbreaking things about Roe versus Wade being overturned is that it feels like kind of a disruption of that feeling of systemic change being more permanent and being something that is protected. And I feel like with Roe versus Wade being overturned, I'm at least feeling like if our rights can be taken away at any point while we're also fighting within the same system that is fighting us, what progress are we really making? And is progress always going to be something that we're protecting with our lives or it's going to be backtracked? That's honestly what it feels like. So I feel like for me, the concept of time has really been warped both because of being in a post-pandemic world where we're slowly getting out into the, you know, real world, uh, you know, not quarantined. Also because social media has a whole other different warped time thing. And of course, the headlines every single day just are so exhausting. Like Roe versus Wade being overturned, mass shootings, like it's just exhausting. And so for me, I've definitely been sleeping a lot more. As y'all know, it's been a really long journey of working through insomnia. And I've been in such a good place of sleeping like eight hours a day. 
Um, lately that's been more like a 10 to 12 hour a day thing. And I still wake up feeling really tired. I think it's more of an emotional thing. I definitely went through like a little bit of a depressive episode, um, after Roe versus Wade was overturned. And I think a lot of that was just like waking up every day. Usually my habits are you know, checking my phone, checking the news. I always listen to the daily podcast by the New York times. And it was just like everywhere I turned more depressing things. So I I honestly don't know anybody who was not going through some sort of depressive episode over the last week, but overall I'm feeling thankful for the communities that I do have, because I think that the solidarity that I have found online, the sisterhood that I found in my own friendships have been what is keeping me afloat. And that is something that I am very thankful for. Now, something we've talked about quite a bit on the podcast and especially over the last couple years of the pandemic and seeing the anti-Asian violence and hate crimes be on a rise is Asian American identity. For those of you who cannot see me on video right now, you might not know that I am Asian. Uh, I have a very Asian last name. My last name is Okamoto, which is very Japanese. I've been told that Okamoto is like Smith but in Japanese. So it is a very common last name. Um, but you know, for me, Asian American identity is something that I've always really struggled with. I grew up feeling really ashamed of being Asian because of being teased and bullied for it and, um, or objectified for it. I think similarly, I have never felt truly in touch with my own heritage, whether that be culturally of understanding Japanese or Taiwanese culture, I also am not really close with family members who are still there. I have many, many cousins on both sides, both in Taiwan and Japan, and I'm not close with them. I'm not on speaking terms with them. My grandparents disowned me. That's a whole other podcast episode if you want to scroll down a few episodes back. Um, And I'm not in touch with my dad who was born in Japan. So I think for me, my identity racially, culturally has always been something that I've really struggled with. And it really has been only in the last year, couple years of studying Asian American sociology for the first time in my life and connecting with other Asian American activists who have been actively fighting for more representation and racial equality in the context of identifying as Asian American that I feel like I've started to really understand what it means to me to be Asian American. And that answer is very fluid. That is something that I will constantly be searching for I'm trying to define, I think, for the rest of my life, but it is something we're going to be talking to today with my guest, Jeannie J. Park, who is someone I've been connected to on social media for maybe over a year now. She really, uh, you know, she, I, I started to get to know her work, um, in the summer of 2020, when she was organizing with warriors in the garden, which is a New York city based activist group, um, that was founded by a group of, I think 12 different activists, um, who were in the black lives matter movement. One of them being a childhood friend of mine, Livia Rose Johnson. And so through following Livia, I connected with Jeannie and then started following her and have just been so blown away with how she's created space for herself as an Asian American activist, as an advocate for black and Asian solidarity, as an advocate to talk about mental health and sustainability. And she's also a model. And if you haven't seen her on social media, definitely go check her out. But I recently met up with her for the first time in person and was just honestly blown away by the way she thinks about and reflects on Asian American identity. So with that, welcome Jeannie. 
Diego asks, how would you love a chance to save money on your insurance? Of course you would. After all, who wouldn't love a great deal, right? And when it comes to great rates on insurance for all of the things in your life, Geico can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners, condo, or renters coverage. You could save even more with a special discount when you bundle your coverages. Plus, add the easy-to-use Geico mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance, and more. And choosing to switch to Geico becomes an easy choice. Switch to today and see all the ways you could save with great rates and discounts. It's easy. Simply go to geico.com to get a rate quote or contact your local agent and get started seeing how much you could save. This show is part of the pro-democracy podcast coalition. I think most of us agree that in a functioning democracy, the winner should be determined by the voters. Well, that almost didn't happen in 2020. Now extremists are working to intimidate and replace nonpartisan election workers with quote unquote, yes men who might reject election results. The only thing that will stop them is us. We partnered with the grassroots pro-democracy organization, Represent Us, to give you the tools you need to protect free and fair elections. Learn more and get involved. Visit represent.us slash pod to learn more. Hi, Jeannie. Hi. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. For the friends of ours who are listening and not watching, um, they might not know you're Asian, but we know you're Asian. We know we're Asian. Uh, What is your racial ethnic background? I am first generation Korean American. My parents were both born in South Korea and immigrated here the year I was born. Okay. And you have uh, siblings? Yeah, I have a sister. She's a year older than me. She's also Asian. (laughs) Surprise! I always ask about siblings, I think, (laughs) because I feel like at least for me as an Asian American oldest sibling, sibling roles are are very much a thing. Yeah. Like various East Asian cultures, especially, I think, because there's this whole respect of the elders and hierarchy that naturally happens hierarchy and it's a filial piety yeah even like who eats first yeah where you're placed on the family portrait that kind of stuff yeah I'm the baby of the family so I got the least attention do you feel like right now you identify really strongly as a Korean American or more as like an Asian American I this is a really good question. I feel like I teetered between, in the beginning, um, I wanted to come, you know, we know the term Asian American was coined in the 60s by, it, during the Asian civil rights movement by four Asian women scholars at UCLA as an attempt to build interracial solidarity. Yeah. So kind of when I started doing this organizing work, I really wanted to come from a place of building solidarity. And, but then I felt that it, that, that term became such a blanketing term yeah and such a monolithic thing to really flatten us all into one um and so now I like to be very specific about the fact that I'm Korean American because I think our experiences are so diverse and you know there's 44 countries yeah in Asia yeah but in America it's Asian is syndicated to Chinese, Korean, or Japanese. Yeah. And I also think we saw in the way that, you know, we kind of all got scapegoated, regardless of the fact of whether we're Chinese, that with this 
anti-Chinese sentiment mm -hmm. from the coronavirus. It was just all Asians. Yeah, and I, I think also in the 20th century, we saw that with a lot of anti-Japanese sentiment. Yeah. So this is not new, new, not new at all. Yes. So take uh, notes, children, <laughs> learn your history. Right before, uh, in when we were doing the intro, I was kind of talking about how I came to know you really a couple years ago when you started organizing with Warriors in the Garden. But where, it was that the beginning or where was that in your organizing journey? So I, I feel like me starting to organize was kind of the final straw mm -hmm. on just a lifetime of suppressing my Asian American identity, my Korean, my Korean identity. And really in, in college is when I, I, you know, changed my major halfway through to Asian American studies. I was, I need to learn the history of my people. I need to, because I felt so lost in terms of, I felt like I had no connection to my roots, but I had also spent, you know, 23 years running away from them. Mm -hmm. I tried to be so white growing up. I was the banana, <laughs> the ideal banana um, and the ideal like model minority. And so I think organizing was also just so healing for me to really reckon and awaken to, you know, radical, almost Asian awakening and pride from such self-hatred and repression. So your the organizing was really kind of 2020. Yeah, right? that was 2020. We, Warriors in the Garden, you know, came together during the summer of the George Floyd protests. And it's an organization that is Black liberation focused, but committed to eradicating all forms of white supremacy. You know, we recognize how things like the model minority myth and the depiction of Asian Americans in media today is also being used as a juxtaposition to further yeah. perpetuate anti-Blackness and exacerbate the tensions between our two communities. So we really wanted to come from a place of bridging those gaps and also telling the history of this solidarity that is very erased from history textbooks. We see, you know, it's like, no one knows this, but two founding members of the Black Panther Party were fully Japanese American. Mm -hmm. And you see from all the way back to Frederick Douglass speaking out against the Chinese Exclusion Act, to Yuri Kochiyama, to Grace Lee Boggs, to really all of these figures that have paved the way for us to be here today. It was really empowering, I think, for me to learn. And I really didn't learn this history until I started organizing. Mm -hmm. I had touched on it in college, but really getting into it and reading also, you know, the, the, the novels and the books and the studies that a lot of these activists left for us to build upon. And yeah, I think... I think it's it I think oh my earring just failed. <laughs> I get sad because I think about in one way how I feel like I've kind of only gotten to know my Asian identity based on tragedy. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a 
so telling of the Asian American experience that the racism we face is so silenced and almost subliminal that it took such violence and death for people to validate it. Mm -hmm. And still, even with that validation, we don't really see the needle moving. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I similarly did not know, and I was very uneducated about Asian American sociology and history. And I still very much have a lot of learning to do, but it is crazy to think about how it really wasn't until late 2020 when I was doing like my own accountability work yeah. of being like, what is the model minority myth? Like I've always known this term model minority, but I didn't understand how being a model minority was bad or how it was related yeah. at all to anti-blackness or how it was created by like a white supremacist system. And even the names like Yuri Kochiyama and Grace Lee Boggs are not names that ever came up in school. school. Even in like my intro Asian American sociology class, yeah. I don't think it came up. I think I remember hearing about like Vincent Chin and hearing about overall anti-Japanese sentiment um, during the war and hearing about like Chinese railroad workers. But yeah. I don't think any of these like pillar figures yeah. were included in a lot of even those like intro classes. Yeah. And it is crazy because like the more you like the more you st study it, you realize how prominent those voices were, yeah. especially in like all racial equality work and even yeah. in the reimagining capitalism work. So, I mean, I, I'm right there with you. I feel like the last couple of years have just been like catching up in a lot of ways. But I feel like for me, I look at you and I feel like press and social media, you have this profile of being a very proud Asian Korean American. And you absolutely are. But it also doesn't sound like it was always like that. No. Right? So are you good? Oh, yeah. So growing up, you were that Asian girl, that uh, banana. That Asian girl. That Asian girl, banana life. Um, banana I life. very much identify with that, which is the yellow on the outside, white on the yes. inside. And I feel like for me, so much of my being teased growing up was about my eyes, my yeah. looks. I remember people would say that my vagina would smell more fishy and that yep. was always an insecurity I had. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for <laughs> me, I feel like I also grew up feeling really ashamed of it. But I, uh, and so I'm curious to know a little bit more about like, your experience. Where did you grow up? And like, what was your relationship with your racial identity growing up? It took me so goddamn long <laughs> to get here. Like, fuck. <laughs> oh my God. Oh. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, so I grew up in, I was born in Los Angeles, in Long Beach, California. And then I moved to New Jersey in Bern County, which is like 45 minutes away from here. Very white, very suburban, very Vineyard Vines, Vera Bradley, you name it, <laughs> we got it. Um, yeah, I think, and it's funny because it's actually a very Korean dominated part of New Jersey, but it was so segregated in the ways mm. that the Asian kids hung out with the Asian kids, the Korean kids hung out with the Korean kids. And I, I didn't even feel accepted by the Korean kids because I wasn't really, I didn't feel like I'd never fit that like Korean mold from a really young age. 
I was always a bad Korean. What is a good Korean? I don't know. <laughs> I, a good Korean is someone who goes to Hagwon, who goes to, you know, the… What is Hagwon? Hagwon is like after school school. Oh, yeah. Did you ever go to after school school? I yeah, went to, to Kumon. Yeah, Kumon. Yeah. Kumon is Hagwon. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I went to that shit every day after school until I was like 16. So you were a good Korean. Yeah, but I, I, I would skip all the time. Mm. Okay. And I wasn't good at math. And I realized I wasn't good at math. Like I hit middle school. I was like, this is not my jam. I, everything my mom made me do, I quit. Piano, ice skating, violin. My mom made me play the harp. She was like, if you play the harp, you'll, because she realized I was a bad Asian from a young age. So it was so funny. She was like, she can't play the piano that well. She can't. She, what are we going to do? Yeah. The harp. If she plays the harp, she'll go to harp. No one else plays the harp, Jeannie. Yeah. She'll go to Harvard. Because the orchestra will need a harpist. <laughs> There's no other. There, no, no one else plays the harp. So that was her solution. Yeah, that lasted like six months. Did you speak Korean at home? Yeah, I speak like Konglish. Okay. Yeah. Tonglish. Tonglish. I don't know. I, it's broken Korean English because, yeah. I mean, my Korean was good when it was, when I was a lot younger and we would, I grew up going to Korea every year because the rest of my family is still there. But now it's, it's, you know, I lost the tongue. Do you feel like you ha- were, had a lot of community in the Korean community? Like, you had Korean friends. You were going to Korean after school. Not really. And for me, my Korean identity when I was younger was really closely tied with the church. Because mm. I grew up in such a traditionally religious, you know, Korean household. And I was like, get me out of this shit. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, and I think I... I think I recognized from a really young age that I didn't want to follow their these boxes and rules that the world lays out for us. But I also fell into them anyway on my yeah. own. But it was definitely this fear that I the only way I could make myself seen was to be like the only one in the room. And I think that this dynamic is one that still shows up in my life. It is literally only recently that I have a lot of Asian friends. Mm. I have never in my life, I've never dated an Asian person. I've never been comfortable until recently surrounding myself with my community because I felt like it made me look so Asian. And you didn't want to look Asian. Why? Because I wanted to be accepted. And I wanted to. By white people. Yeah. And I was teased. I mean, I was teased for my whole life from as young as I can remember. But not even teased, like bullied, physically attacked, harassed every day of my life for being Asian. I would go home. I wouldn't be able to talk about it. Mm -hmm. My parents told me to keep my head down to be grateful for what I'm given, even if it's only the scraps, you know, we're guests in this country. I think for them too, being immigrants, it wasn't, they've always, their, their generation, 
have very much, I think, assumed the model minority mm-hmm. boxes. And yeah, I was, I think about some of the shit that happened to me when I was younger and I'm like, fuck. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I think it's just like, this, there was this boy in, in, in middle school who every day would tease me about like my eyes, like the smell of me, like everything, the lunchbox, everything, mm-hmm. head to toe. And one day, he, my mom caught him leaving like a dead bird in our mailbox and it had a little packet of soy sauce attached to it. Oh my god! And this is so, like, it's fucking hilarious now I think about it and I laugh at it. But it's also so traumatic that I would have gone through that when I was in second, third grade. Yeah. And that it also would have been so brushed under the carpet. And I, I think, you know, these experiences happening to me so much compounded with the fact that my parents didn't really open that space yeah. for these conversations to be had. I literally was never told that I didn't learn about Asian people being discriminated against. I didn't learn the history of it. I, didn't, I wasn't told. Like, I literally thought I was white. That's insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I am not white. Yeah. There is I have never been white. I will never be white. I mean, you know, yeah. When your mom saw that boy putting the dead bird in your mailbox, what was her reaction? Was there a conversation about it? No. She just threw it away. Yeah. And yeah. we didn't talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the trauma even of that is, I mean, it's the model minority myth, like kind of the harm that it does on Asian Americans or just Asian people in this country in general is like, you are the ones who are good at math. You're statistically the ones that have yeah. a closer income, higher proximity to whiteness. Yeah. And we see our like black and brown brothers and sisters and siblings who are being ridiculed for things that I don't want to say are much worse but feel much worse, right? Like, oh, they're making fun of me for being good at math. They're making fun of me for, you know, being good at doing piano, you know, things that, but at the same time, these very traumatic things, like I smell bad, I'm ugly, my eyes are small, you know, things that absolutely are so traumatic as well. Um, And yeah, I mean, I think something I was always really thankful for is like, I'm second generation Chinese, first generation Japanese. And my mom talked about everything. So we dissected everything. We didn't learn. We didn't talk about the history, but we talked a lot about like, why is this bad? How are you feeling? There was a lot of therapy. Yeah. So when do you think that, you know, coming from maybe a household where you weren't talking about the bullying or what you're going through, when did you kind of have that light bulb moment of like, wait, I'm not white. I'm, you know, I am Asian and that this is bullying. Literally. To your 2020? Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, not even because I remember 2020, the beginning of the pandemic, we started seeing anti-Asian yeah. hate crimes. I was speaking out about it. I was getting gaslit left and right. People were literally shutting me down. And, but that is also the model minority myth doing its dirty work of telling us to shut up, sit down, be quiet and listen. That, you know, we are wealthy, white Ivy League educated uh, 
Americans, that we yeah. are accepted, that because we've kept our head down and we've been quiet and we've worked hard enough that we've made it. This is where have we made, where, where, have we, you know, like, where are we? And I think that moment where I really started realizing, like, even if we've played along, we've played along, I've played along all these rules. I literally lied. I played into it so deep that I took me 22, 22 years to come to that realization and to start loving myself for who I really am. And I think that is what the model minority myth is. I think that's what it does. And, you know, in the sphere of white supremacy, it's this crazy, like I see the model minority myth as such a tying yet invisible thread that keeps white supremacy going. How would you describe the model minority myth to like someone who's never heard of it before? The false depiction that Asian people are white. Yeah. Like to put it simply. And well and, off. Yeah. And it erases also, I mean, this is why we have such a monolithic view of what Asian American is right now. It's really only Eastern Asian. That's what people recognize. But and wealthy. Yeah, Eastern, well-educated, wealthy, like crazy rich Asians. That's what I think of. I think of these depictions and the media portrayal of Asian Americans right now. Bling Empire. It completely invalidates and erases an entire working class. And it is actually not very well known that Asian Americans out of all minority groups in America, we have the highest wealth disparity, mm -hmm. the highest wealth gap. So, and it is also the undocumented Asians, the South Asians, black and brown Asians, queer Asians, yeah. disabled Asians. These people are all getting erased when we only look at Asian in this narrow perspective of what the model minority myth allows us to see. And for me, it's yes about getting people to learn about it and understand the racism that we faced, but it's also about like, how do we detangle these wet? How do I really like, how do I detangle the conditioning the, that I've, undergone throughout my whole life yeah. up till this point under this myth and that is really where I think that is the first step of how I believe I play a part in dismantling the systems of white supremacy in the grander scheme yeah I think when we talk about how it starts with us that is for me it, it, it took me a really long time and I'm still trying to understand the place that I assumed within yeah. the system and like the webs of and labyrinth of white supremacy and how I fed into that. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's, it's so crazy because I, I completely relate to, I mean, dealing with comments where you grow up as a child being teased for your race and for being Asian and yet also being told that you're basically white. And like, yeah, it's so, I, it's confusing. so confusing. Like, I'm, I don't know how to process that. Yeah. All. And they're like, even now on social media, like if I ever when every time I talk about like 
anti-Asian violence. People are like, bro, you're literally white. Like, yeah, a lot this of- is the biggest reach of discrimination I've ever yeah, seen. I'm I see like- so many comments from like white girls who are like, my skin is literally darker than yours. yours. I'm like, you have a spray tan. <laughs> like, but first of all, like that's no. not what we're talking about here. But no, which you know feeds also into like the whole colorism thing within the Asian American community. But you know, a lot of the model minority myth, like it was a constructed thing by white owned media. Yeah. Like I remember there, I it's fascinating for me, like looking through old like Time magazine covers where it's like the Japanese nerdy whiz kids, the ones who are like your biggest competitions <laughs> for white people. But I think it's, it's so scary. A lot of my learning recently was also like reading into like, okay, how does this also at the core, at its core also harm our black communities, yeah. right? And you've been doing so much of your organizing work also kind of in the context also of Black Lives Matter and the George Floyd protests. How do you feel like you were able to approach those, commu- that, like that scene, right? Uh, where so much of the focus, even from a media perspective, was about Black Lives Matter and foster that element of, like, you know, interracial community and solidarity and also something I've been honestly always nervous about is, like, taking up space but not too Too much much space. space. And I feel like going back to the idea of, like, what is a good Asian, like, a in good Asian ways, doesn't take up does not take space. up any space. Any space, yes, especially yeah. as an Asian woman. Yeah. So how do you how did you approach that like in 2020? Like everybody's talking about Black Lives Matter, George Floyd, but also rising anti Asian violence and your organizing. I mean, I feel like I ended up in that space because one, I saw such a white space as soon as I got on the ground of solidarity between our two communities and actually beyond that just tensions you know it was I remember like the first rally that was organized the first big rally after Atlanta that was organized here in New York it was Andrew Yang Andrew Yang was at the center of that rally and he pulled up with so much NYPD at a march that the organizers of and, you know, had invited us warriors in the garden to come speak, specifically the black women are in the organization to touch on solidarity, but they're not going to put the care of understanding why when you invite a black led or abolition focused organization to a march that to a rally that is pre- the police is present at how you're, directly putting those women in danger. And I also saw such a a white space in on the ground after Atlanta for just Asian women on the mic taking up space. And that pissed me the fuck off because it was just a bunch of Asian men. It was very, mm. and I think the grassroots Asian American space has also very much always been patriarchally dominated. And that's a whole other, you know. It's like many Asian cultures. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very, I mean, that was so enraging to me because all I needed, and I could see it in the eyes of so many, you know, Asian sisters next to me, all that we needed was to hear from someone who looked like us, who was feeling the pain of what it meant to be an Asian woman in America on that day. And 
so for me, I was, that's really what just propelled me. And the more I started doing this work, the more I realized that the anti-Asian hate crimes are being presented in the media right now in a, in a way to push more policing, mass policing, and to further exacerbate tensions between Black and Asian folks, you know. It's like what you said about the media only portraying yeah. photos of the Black perpetrators of these crimes. When you, If you look at the data, if you look at the numbers, it is mostly predominantly white folks who are attacking Asian people in this country right now. Yeah, you turn on the news, completely different story. But they're exacerbating tensions that they already know exist that we also haven't really been taught about. So I feel like all of this was happening subconsciously under us. And I studied Asian American studies. I studied critical race theory. I studied, you know, what I could find about the history of how the African-American civil rights movement and Asian American civil rights movement worked together in the 60s. And, you know, we sat down at the table. And because at the end of the day, when Atlanta happened and when hate crimes were happening, specifically against Asian women, Black women were there for me. They understood what that felt like. They also understood what it feels like to organize in a, in a movement where they get erased, you know, where their own, where they're literally discriminated by Black men leading those movements too and erased. So... I think it's at the end of the day, the intersections of the racism and the sexualization that we face really renders us in such an invisible place. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to what you say about like how a good Asian woman does not take up space. And that's something we've learned. That's something I've learned from watching my mom to the TV I've ingested, to the books I've read, to just the world we've grown up in and that's just like no more have you had conversations with your parents about organizing mm -hmm. have they come to your protests my mom has my mom has and yeah I think I've radicalized my mom a little bit which is very exciting yeah but you know I'm I understand that my parents come from a generation and also my grandparents come, and they all came from a country that where they went through so much imperialism and war and colonization and I for a really long time I think I held also a lot of judgment towards my family for believing these things and, you know, for having anti-Black views, for having homophobic, transphobic views. But it's coming from a place of really understanding why they think the way they think that I think is allowed for the most space to be created, for there to be not such stark polarization, but for us to actually be able to meet in the middle. Yeah. But, yeah, that's been a long, it's been a long journey. I'm sure you know. Yeah. I mean, I think that for, like, I keep talking about, I feel like I'm finding more answers about what it means to be Asian American, but also, like, the more I think about it, the more I'm like, well, it means so many things. 
so it kind of means nothing. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. it's kind of whatever you want it to mean. Because, yeah. I mean, as you said, like, historically, even the term Asian-American, it was created, you know, in the 60s. Honestly, Asian-American was created as a term to create solidarity with non-Asian oppressed communities. Yeah. So it wasn't even about, like, the Asian-American Asian, experience. It was never about defining us. No, it was about, like, defining solidarity to yeah. other groups. Yeah. And then I think similarly, like, there are all these different paradoxes. As you said, like, how do I assimilate while I'm also being, you know, teased? Yeah. How do I establish that I am not white while also being in a system where the model minority myth says I'm basically white? white. Yeah. You know, there are all these different paradoxes. Or, like, even I think for me, like, on paper, I get, I like, when people read my resume, like, uh, or, like, they introduce me, usually their first reaction is, like, wow, you're, like, grandparents must be so proud of you. And I'm, like, my grandparents Stop. disowned me oh because I was not Chinese enough. Yeah. When in reality, I'm, like, on paper, like, I went to Harvard. I'm, yeah. like, financially independent. Like, I'm a fucking homeowner. Like, there are all these things that you would think that make them really proud. But it's, like, no, but because I did that by being allowed person I'm yeah. a bad Asian I'm a bad Chinese granddaughter yeah. I am a disownable you know yeah. dishonorable and yeah. so it's all these different paradoxes that I just think are just so that are confusing that's why you just gotta throw that shit wrap it all up and throw it out the window fuck it all and then how do you it's like how yeah. do you for me it's like because I relate to that so much like even if on paper everything you're doing is perfect I was never good enough because yeah. I was never quiet enough and I am a very loud person yeah. like bitch I was born this way I'm a fucking Leo <laughs> I'm a double Leo there's two double Leo in my chart like you're not yeah. gonna shut me up and that was very early on like my parents literally like put me in like taekwondo they were like you know neutralize her <laughs> neutralize her get all the energy yeah out. take it out neutralize her and even I mean it's painful because I wish my parents were have were proud of what I was doing and what I'm trying to create with community yeah. organizing but speaking up against racism is very non-Asian it's yeah. just it's a bad thing to do to my parents to them it's like I remember the conversations we had when we first start, saw these hate crimes happening it was like oh like honestly and the saddest part was that it didn't surprise them. They were like, this is just the way things are. But, you know, recently my mom did say something to me about how, how all, my ability to resist and speak out is also a privilege. Mm -hmm. And I think this is, what, this is really the ultimate sacrifice of what I feel like my parents have sacrificed and the privilege that they've the privileges that they've given me and i truly believe that this is how i exercise them yeah and because it is so many of the things that i speak out against like my mom grew up in a society where it didn't validate it as wrong you know and so i think she just it's the privilege of growing up also in a society at the end of the day that as much as they tell you to assimilate, you know, we've seen allyship and solidarity from communities and 
um, sorry, I'm brain farting. <laughs> no, I totally, I totally hear what you're saying. And I think like, I think about this a lot with my grandparents because I remember talking to them about the anti-Asian violence and they're like, oh, but it's because black people are racist. Like yeah. they're much more conservative. They're Trump supporters. Yeah. Same. But it was really fascinating because it kind of minimized the idea that anti-Asian violence was like really a thing. Yeah. Like in as a as a societal issue is more like, oh, it's a black and Asian issue. Yeah. But at the same time, like my my grandparents have been living here for 50 years or something. They're still very, you know, what they would people would call like Bob, like fresh off the boat, like very thick accents. They social cues are not, you know, they definitely draw a lot of attention. Yeah. And they live in Indiana and walking around with them, like my initial emotion is like feeling embarrassed because the way they're interacting with other people, the accents and the way they're talking at people, you know, very like in your face. Yeah. Like people look at them weird. People yeah. judge them. People say mean things. And and for me, it's easy to be like, why why don't they realize that they're being mistreated? Why aren't they saying anything? Why do they just pretend everything's fine and then blame it on someone else, yeah. blame it on black people, right? And a lot of it is, that is the model minority myth at work, but also I kind of recognize like, it's a survival mechanism, right? Yeah. Like they got here as poor Taiwanese Americans during the Chinese Exclusion Act, by the yeah. way, and were getting jobs at white institutions. Yeah. And if you said anything, you would not have a job, right? So I do think it is this like idea of like a good Asian is someone who keeps their head down, is survival mode, and is yeah. trying to work in this white man's world of make money, move up the hierarchy, higher education. And a lot of that value on education is the fucking Chinese Exclusion Act, which only made exceptions for higher education. Yeah. Like people who are coming to pursue. Yeah. It's crazy. It's fucking insane. I mean, you think about that, you think like, a decade later after that, it was the Anti-Prostitution Act of 1890, which barred any Asian woman from coming onto American land out of suspicion that they were, like, under the assumption oh, that I all, totally forgot about all that, yeah. Asian women are prostitutes, are war-torn mail-order brides. Yeah. Under that assumption. And that's, you know, a, a, a picture that very much the media at the time helped of paint and we see how those abuses of power are still alive today you know you saw the way the the way the media reported just on the Atlanta shooting yeah on how they glamorized the killer and his excuse of I was having a bad day well so, also so he said what he was to be a good Asian means to be their bad day like their exotic dream. Yeah. Especially to be a good Asian woman, to be a yeah. good Asian woman in America. It's like very servile. Yeah. yeah. You, you serve. It's so, to me, like submission has been my survival mechanism. Yeah. It is one that I learned, I was conditioned under, under my mother. And it is one that is generations deep and old from way before our, our families even came to America because it's so, you know, Asian cultures in general are so patriarchal. Women are, are unequal humans. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it is very servile even then. And actually, it's really funny because when I started dating my current boyfriend who is white, 
we I've always had like a really big insecurity that like white guys would only be into me because I'm Asian just, yeah. and like not because I they actually was were attracted yeah. to me. And like I've dated some people where that very much was the case yeah. and then some who are not, but because it's such an insecurity. And he's from Switzerland, and so he's never he never learned about U.S. history or any of this. Yeah. And I made him watch multiple documentaries with me about like the history of the fetishization of Asian women because I was like, <laughs> you need to understand where this insecurity comes from and have language for it. But okay, so I, I have one more that. question for you. I we could honestly we have so many episodes to do because there's so much to talk about. But I know I feel like we only touched on like the, the first very, yeah. bullet point from but our list. The one thing I wanted to ask you about is like. So much of the uh, the stereotyping and like the disrespect, I'll say disrespect of Asian women is around like the objectification of our bodies. A lot of the teasing growing up is about the way we look and the idea, even of idea of like feeling attractive, being pretty for an Asian girl, all of that. How do you feel like you've grown now that you are a literal model? <laughs> uh backwards and upwards for sure okay I feel like my experiences in the industry have provided a very compelling and holistic lens I think for all of these dynamics of fetishization that I learned about for so many years and it was kind of the culmination of just really out out front, you know, monolithic stereotyping and, you know, being booked for Chinese New Year campaigns mm. like 100% Korean. That doesn't matter <laughs> because we're all the same. We're all the same. Okay. The amount of times I've walked onto a set and literally been asked to like head to toe be transformed into a geisha for editorial purposes. But not understanding how, I guess, harmful it is to continue glamorizing comfort women in this day and age, mm -hmm. especially Asian women. So I, I think it's empowered me and it's also disempowered me. It was really until like, I would say the last year when I started also feeling like I could take up space in my own career. Mm. I think as models, we're constantly, we're literally just props. We're props. We're propped up mannequins. We're told where to go, where and when. Like I have never been really involved in the creative process of any project I've been involved in until I have thrown my body into that room, been like, hello, yeah. listen to me. Um, and, but I think just fashion in general has also been like a chosen lens for me to understand the systems of oppression that we face. Because it's also, you know, the way Asian models get hypersexualized and fetishized on set and harassed is mimics the way this industry has built itself to this size off of the labor of Asian women, Asian hands off of our backs. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I wrote a whole paper about how 
the climate crisis and sustainability in fashion is connected to anti-Asian racism. We love. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Period. And how whitewashed, I mean, how whitewashed the sustainability and kind of environmental movement, the mainstream environmental movement in America has become is really directly interconnected with an agenda of anti-Asian racism. I know that I think you're beautiful. Do you feel beautiful? On most days, no, but I'm working to get there. I'm going to be super honest. Like I wake up most days and I have to look at myself for 10 minutes when I wake up in the morning doing affirmations, telling myself that I fucking love myself in order to feel some type of safety and comfort in my own skin. It is, I feel like I've been backtracking so much for like the last few years because it's almost like, I feel like I'm only starting to like live for the first (laughs) time because it's, I'm embracing an identity that I, you know, ran away so heavily from my whole life. And I always say like, if I could just get one other girl to learn to, in, in this growing up in this country to not take 22 years to learn to love herself and my job is done we love well you definitely have done that so maybe you can <laughs> retire now um we i'm so excited for many future episodes because we have so much to talk yes, about um, much more to come but come back next week because next week we'll also be with Jeannie because we have so much to talk about yes. and we'll link all your socials and yeah we'll see you soon i'll see you guys then This is the place where Black is the main character, where we dive into something new like the latest season of Them, The Scare, and the award-winning American fiction. Or add to the experience by buying or renting the biopic of a legend, Bob Marley, One Love. And add on channels like Paramount Plus and Stars to bask in nostalgia with Beverly Hills Cop and BMF. Explore Prime Video's culture-rated collection and enjoy old-school greats and new-school hits. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.